Well, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 1. And I'd like to finish the first chapter of Revelation in light of Thanksgiving. Uh, as was mentioned in the prayer, this has been one of the craziest years uh, we've seen. And yet God calls us to give thanks in light of COVID-19, in light of all the shutdowns, in light of BLM rioting and election drama and everything else, which means that you could argue that giving thanks is one of the most faith-filled actions that there is, that it really takes a faith perspective to truly give thanks, especially when you've got all these kinds of things going on, which raises the question of thankful for what or thankful for whom or thankful why. And for me, this is one of those passages that helps to to clarify that and focus that for me in a very helpful way. So let me read for us verses 9 through 20 of Revelation uh, chapter 1. It says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard Behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest, with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. For the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Let me begin by asking the question, what is your vision for the Christian life? And um, in what ways would you or I be surprised if our lives played out? like the way we've been surprised this year with all that's gone on. There's an illustration that we've heard several times uh, over the years uh, that C.S. Lewis used about the idea of God offering us a holiday at the sea and that we tend to be like little children in a slum making mud pies and we can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is, so we just say, no, thank you, I'll just keep playing in the mud pies. Uh, you know, pile here. 
one of the things that we might uh, get the idea is that if I come to Christ based on that offer, then my life will be like a day at the beach. Easy and wonderful. Well, there's a movie about a real tsunami that hit in Thailand and about a family who was vacationing on a beautiful beach. The tsunami hits and everything, chaos breaks forth and it's incredible suffering. It's an amazing story of how God actually brought them through that day at the beach. And so just as they were surprised that a beautiful beach vacation could turn into such a trial and what they would consider a tragedy, uh, we might consider the same thing when we read things like what we find in verse 9 when it says, John, this is the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples we believe most likely, writing who says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now the way that's written in the Greek there's an article before tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which, which means those three things go together. You cannot separate those three things. And that's highlighted by the fact that it says, which are in Jesus. So that if I'm in union with Jesus by faith, by grace through faith, then I can expect to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. But I can also expect tribulation in this world. They go together. And yet, what else goes together? Perseverance. That if I'm truly in Jesus, that though being a part of God's kingdom in this fallen world includes great tribulation, there will also still be grace to persevere, grace to hold on, grace not to turn my back on Jesus. And so um, it's helpful to realize that... um, We should expect opposition. We should expect persecution. Uh, The book of Revelation was written to a church that was beginning to experience and had experienced persecution and would experience even greater persecution in the future. And yet, we tend not to think about that way as American Christians. We don't think about tribulation, the word tribulation means the the pressure that you would apply to crush a grape to get wine. It's a crushing pressure. That's what tribulation is. It's a sore trouble. It's not just light affliction. We're talking about real, difficult, painful, heart, gut-wrenching circumstances. That's what the word tribulation really means. And so, uh, The Bible says that that's what we ought to really expect as Christians in this world. And yet we oftentimes, especially in American Christianity, not in other places where there's persecution, but in American Christianity, we don't usually and often see it that way. Um, It says in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus speaking, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. Then Paul could say, right after he's been stoned to the other believers, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Being stoned is no light affliction. He was stoned to the point they thought he was dead. And he wasn't. God enabled him to live. And so the picture that we have here in Revelation is a picture in which these believers... 
just like you and I, are actually in union with Jesus. And they're actually part of the kingdom of Jesus. And they actually rule and reign with Jesus. And yet, as someone has said, the church's participation in Jesus' royal power now lies largely hidden, veiled behind all too visible affliction, poverty, and little power. There's um, there's a book that's entitled The The Insanity of God. There's actually a docudrama that uh, our family watched recently um, based on that book. It's an incredible um, movie, incredible testimony. It's about two missionaries named Nick and Ruth Ripken and how they lost their son and they decided to go to the persecuted church and find out if following Jesus was really worth it. Is it really worth all the tribulation? Is it really worth all the crushing that takes place in this world? Um, and can can you really follow Jesus when things don't make sense? That's the whole idea of the insanity part. That God works in such a way that he works in ways that don't make sense to us, but make perfect sense from his perspective. And what they found out talking to the persecuted church is, some, one of them said, you know, in talking about persecution, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There's nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably always will be a normal part of life. We consider oftentimes tribulation, especially persecution as Christians, as something abnormal because we've had so much freedom in our country. And yet believers around the world would say persecution, tribulation is just normal. Uh, it's like the sun coming up. We expect it every day. We expect the sun come up to come up every day. We expect tribulation, persecution for our faith every day. And this uh, missionary said, to me, the most startling thing Jesus ever said was when he assigned his followers the task of going out in pairs to share his good news with lost people. He said that he was sending them as sheep among wolves. Still, he expected them to prevail in the history of the world No sheep has ever won a fight with a wolf. The very idea is insane. That's the insanity part that the title is talking about. And so the important thing for us to realize is that this is where the book of Revelation is coming from when it reveals what we see in the next verses, which is in verses 12 through 16, which is a picture of Jesus. That it's in that context that the The picture of Jesus is so important because we have to ask ourselves, how do we live that way? How do we live in a situation where persecution is as regular as the sun coming up every day? How do you live that way? and How do you do that? And it's by actually seeing to some degree, not perfectly, but to some degree, actually seeing the vision of Jesus that we find in verses 12 through 16. We see the exalted ruler. Back uh, in 1960, there was a presidential race between uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And for the first time, they had a televised debate. And in that first televised debate, um, this is what they said about it. And it was significant because it actually uh, shaped the election. 
They said neither man accepted help from CBS's makeup professional, but Kennedy supposedly brought his own team for touch-ups on a face that was already glowing from time out in the sun. Nixon, meanwhile, looked drained, had a terrible five o'clock shadow, and was sweating profusely. His suit blended in with the dried paint on the set wall, making Nixon a literal shadow of a man on TV. So we've got two men saying, I want to be your ruler. (laughs) I want to be your president. I want to lead this nation. One looks youthful, tanned, confident, strong. The other one looks like he's having a breakdown. And he, he was exhausted from what he had done, if you know the, the circumstances under it. And so, obviously, it was still a close election, but John F. Kennedy won. And a lot of it had to do with how he was perceived. I just use that as an illustration to say, it makes a big difference how I perceive Jesus. It makes a big difference whether or not I see him as sweating, sweating everything that's going on, or whether he's strong and he's confident in the face of everything that's going on. Because that is the picture that we have here, that we, we see that Jesus is pictured as being among the lampstands, which means he's among the churches, that he's not absent, he's not on a vacation, he's not playing golf, he's right there in the middle of persecuted, suffering believers, Someone has said, interestingly enough about this, it is in the gathered assemblies of Christians that the presence of Christ resides on earth. In the gathered assemblies. It is no incidental thing whether or not we get together and gather. It's very, very important to the Lord Jesus. And that's why we do. That's why we are. But it pictures him as the Son of Man. And we don't have time. um, But if you go back to Daniel chapter 7... That's the root of that phrase, son of man. And we might think that's about Jesus' humanity. It's not. Well, it's not in the sense that in the way it's used here, it's used in terms of the son of man who actually is a heavenly uh, God-like figure. So it's got, ultimately it's pointing to Christ who was both God and man. But it actually points to his Uh, godness not simply his humanity and in daniel 7 the son of man receives a kingdom but he receives that kingdom on behalf of the saints so you can go back and read that it's very fascinating but in this picture in revelation 1 we have the son of man who has a robe and the robe is a picture and the sash as well as a picture of the high priest so we have jesus who has received a kingdom on behalf of his people, who is pictured as a high priest, someone who mediates between them and God so that they can be accepted by a holy God in light of their sinfulness. And then it goes on to talk about him having white hair. And that's actually connected in Daniel 7 with God on the throne who receives the Son of Man, which identifies the Son of Man as God himself the ancient of days, and it pictures deity and holiness and wisdom. We could highlight all the other things, but let me just point out the uh, one other thing. It talks about his, that it looks like he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And the sword there is probably a reference to the Roman sword that actually looked, was in the shape of a tongue. And so the sword coming out of his mouth, we know, is a, ultimately a picture of the word of God. 
But it's also a picture of the fact that he is a bold warrior. Swords were used to fight. Swords were used to bring judgment on people. So he's a picture, we have the picture of the, the great high priest and the king of kings who is ready to not only defend his people, but to render judgment on those who reject him. And so we see all this uh, in uh, this great picture. And then the last thing it says, you see is the sun shining in its strength. And I think one of the things that refers to is the blessing in the Old Testament when it says, may his face shine upon you. We should see Jesus with blazing love for us and a huge smile on his face when he looks at his people. He's ready to defend us. He's ready to judge evil. He's ready to intercede for us before the Father. But he loves us and he uh, rejoices over us with song. Someone has said, um, if you were to see Jesus right now, he would not look like this. These are all symbols, not of what Jesus looks like, but of what he is like. It's what he is like. They're all references to things about his character. And so it's huge for us in the midst of tribulation, whatever it looks like, to keep our eyes on the king. Corrie Boom, who was a persecuted believer in the Second World War, suffered in a concentration camp, said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. But look at what Christ? You, it depends on what you see in that Christ, whether or not you'll be at rest. Look at the crucified Christ. Jesus, Paul could say we preach Jesus and him crucified. Why is that important? Well, it's important because the king who rules and reigns over everything is a king who brings good out of bad. He brings good out of suffering. Indeed, he brings the greatest good out of the greatest suffering. That's what the cross is. It's the greatest suffering out of which God brought the greatest good. And so if you ask yourself, how can we be a part of a kingdom that includes persecution or tribulation? Because our king brings the greatest good out of the greatest suffering. And we have to believe that, we have to know that, we have to embrace that if looking to Christ is going to offer us any comfort and knowing that he has suffered the greatest thing of all that we might enjoy the greatest reward of all through him. And that brings us to the last point is that we need to really see also uh, something else about what's going on in this picture Is it enough to know that the ruler of the universe is great and to be feared? No, that's not enough to know. Because if that great and fearful ruler is against me, I'm in trouble. And that should terrify me. And that's why the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To actually have to face God without a mediator. But if I see that great God and that great Christ and that great King, and I know that he's for me, no matter what, then that truly is what brings me rest. That truly is something that can deliver me from depression and despair. B.B. Warfield was a great uh, theologian, 
uh, taught at Princeton for many, many years. He was known to be a very uh, fiery character in certain ways and would uh, fight fiercely for the truth and stood strong against error. Well, he got married early on in life, and I believe it was on his honeymoon that he and his wife were out walking, I think it was in Germany, and got caught in a thunderstorm. Something happened in the thunderstorm that caused his wife to be severely traumatized. And from that point on, her health went downhill so that she was basically an invalid most of the remaining part of her life. So much so that um, B.B. Warfield uh, could not leave her for more than two hours at a time. And so he'd go to Princeton and, and he would teach and then he'd go check on his wife. And therefore, he didn't travel. He didn't go speaking and do that sort of thing. The only trip he ever made during that time was to try to get her some special help. And so someone has said, though Warfield may have been known to many as a tenacious fighter, the compassion he directed toward his wife, Annie Kinkhead Warfield, demonstrates a capacity for tenderness and caring that is in its own right quite remarkable. And that's the picture that we have of Christ. We have uh, the greatest warrior of all, the greatest fighter of all, the most tenacious uh, fighter for truth that there is in the universe, and yet the most tender of all as well. The most tender regarding who? Well, it says um, that the mystery of the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, that's a part of the picture of Christ is that he has seven stars in his hand. And it says in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Ultimately, that's been understood in different ways, but probably the best way to understand that is, all things considered, looking at how uh, each church is addressed, is that that refers to the church itself, not just someone separate from the church. He's not just holding in his hand someone or something that's a separate from the churches. He's holding the churches in his hand. And it refers more than likely to the prevailing spirit in the church. That whatever their prevailing spirit is, he still holds them in his hand. And what does the right hand mean? The right hand has a number of different implications. In Exodus 15, it says, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It's a powerful hand. The most powerful place you can be is in the right hand of Christ. It says in Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. It's the greatest place you could be in terms of being fully and forever satisfied. In Psalm 17, 7, it says, wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at or in your right hand from those who rise up against them. It's a picture of protection. And then finally, in Isaiah 41, 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is our helper. He will provide. He will be there for us. No matter how horrendous the tribulation might be, he will be there for us. And so it's a picture of his tender love and care. 
And it's a call to us to never doubt the king's love and care for us. There are verses in Isaiah 49 that say, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. As someone has said, God is answering the question or the accusation, God, you've forsaken me. God, you've, for, you've forgotten me. And God says, can a nursing mother forget her child? Not normally, but even if it ever happens, I will never do that. And so the picture is, uh, think of the most loving mother toward her infant that you've ever seen and know that God is infinitely more loving and caring for you as his people than that mother is. But someone would say, well, you know, words are cheap. Sure, you can say that. How do I know that you really mean that? And so the picture goes on to say that I've inscribed you on my hands. Some people say that means something like, and that at, at times um, s- slaves could have their master's name written on them somewhere on their body, tattooed on them, so that they would know that uh, they were to serve that master. But actually the picture would be reversed because the servant's name would be tattooed on the master saying that the master was going to serve the servant. But it actually goes even further than that because the word inscribed could mean something more than tattooed and it could be translated cut. I have cut you into my hand. And some would even go so far as to say it could be the picture of a nail and chisel. I have cut you into my hand. And what could that be a picture of? be a picture of the same thing that Jesus said to doubting Thomas. Look at my hands and see my side and believe. Believe that I'm alive. Believe that I love you. Believe that you can trust me. So let me just wrap up by saying um, the reign of King Jesus is why we should be thankful. Uh, We may have a lot of other things that we wrestled to say thank you for in light of all that's going on. But this is a passage that says, ultimately, we need to pray for grace to be truly thankful for the reign of King Jesus, which means, in a sense, we need to be thankful for the source of everything. It says in Ephesians 5, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Always giving thanks for all things. Why? For all things. Because everything is ultimately within God's plan. Because he's sovereign. He's not the author of sin and evil, but he is certainly sovereign over it. And therefore, there's a sense in which uh, we can say that came from the hand of God. And so much so that Charles Spurgeon could say, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. What helps us rest in Christ in our trials, knowing that 
They're from his hand. Secondly, we can be thankful that not only is, in a sense, Jesus the source of our trials, he's the resource in our trials. That's why it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, which I mentioned earlier, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything. Why? Because Jesus is among us. Jesus is with us. And he will help us because he's upholding us with his righteous right hand. Again, Charles Spurgeon said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. Very little grace, he would say, from comfortable times. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether beyond what I can calculate. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in the minister's library. So that we ask the question, how could he say that? It's because Jesus shows up in tribulation. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but don't be afraid. Be at peace. I've overcome the world. I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Some people have have wondered about the tide going in and out. And sometimes we feel like uh, the tide is headed in a direction where uh, evil is going to overflow us. And someone has said, we just need to wait for the changing of the tides because Jesus is Lord over the tide. And they put it this way, if our Lord does but stamp his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism and Mohammedanism and agnosticism and modern thought and every other foul error. Who is he that can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth as numerous as the sands of the sea. Wherefore, be of good courage and go on your way singing. May God give us grace to do just that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look to Christ for what we need and rejoice in his rule and reign over everything. Help us not to look at the world and and be distressed. Help us not to look within and be depressed. Help us to look at Christ and to see him for who and what he really is and be at rest. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.